0: Praise the Lord. It's working. God is good. And all the time. And all the time. God is good. And I thank you, Brother low for that warm and humbling introduction. I think I'm going to come out of my uh, sling here. Not that I'm going to be waving, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, you get my age, you get these, these challenges, you know. Uh, I even have invisalign things going on in my mouth too. <laughs> so it's like I thought I better warn you in case something my case my mouth does something weird.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> be forewarned. <full> <laughs> oh praise the Lord. It's always good to be here. It's I'm just ecstatic at what God is doing here. Amen. I just am. Yes. It's just Wonderful,
1: yes.
0: and um, you all are in our prayers. Uh, you know, you are a sister church to Crown and Joy. Uh, really, Los has been in at Crown and Joy and has preached, and our congregation was blessed. So we're just grateful for our connections, connections, and our fellowship you know, one day we're going to be in glory and we'll never have to be separated. All one. All right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Mm -hmm. All thank you for this opportunity to share your word this morning. Thank you for all that you're doing here. And um, thank you, Lord, for all that you have brought this body through. And, And Lord, we just... Praise you for how you, you're, you're adding to your church. It looks like daily, <laughs> as your spirit directs. And we, uh, we rejoice in the need for expansion. And we pray that you will provide all that's necessary, financially and otherwise, for them to be able to expand and continue to serve you. This local body serving you, in it's part of the kingdom of God. These days we pray, prepare our hearts, Lord, to receive your word. And Lord, help this vessel of clay to deliver it as you would have it delivered. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, we're looking at Luke 13. Luke 13, starting at the first verse. We going on down through the ninth verse, Luke thirteen. The old timers, you know, for y'all, it would be almost greats. <laughs> Used to wait for the rustling of the pages, and now we wait for the whisking of the fingers, <laughs> as well as the pages. But you know. I had a professor once say, you should always have a a physical copy of the scriptures. In case anything happens with the grid, you still got the word. (laughs) All right. Luke 13. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He answered them. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and found none. And he said to the vine dresser Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? But he answered, sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put manure, put on manure, and then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. As of August 12th, <clears throat> Before the blame game got started into high gear, the Washington Post reported that it was still unclear what ignited those fires in Hawaii, Hawaii. And those of you, if any of you from Hawaii, please forgive me of for my pronunciations. <clears throat> All they knew was that the National Weather Service reported conditions were ripe for a problem. Months of drought, low humidity, high winds linked to Hurricane Dora. Fires began after midnight on Tuesday. I believe that was August 9th. The magnitude of the fires caught local officials off guard. The first fire burned 675 acres of Macario, the Lahena fire started about 11 a.m. that Wednesday, under 60-mile-an-hour winds, and did not stop until the historic town was burned to the ground. Fire number three started in Kula around noon, and the number four started at six on one of the roads in the Central Valley. There were other fires. At the time, they stated, 89 people had perished. Since then, over 100 have been found dead in the area. Bluntly speaking, who sinned? That such a misfortune would happen to them. That is the question we could ask. That is the question that our folks in the text today were asking. What happened? Who done it? You know, the wrath of God, like this, would be released on them. What we will see today is how Jesus responded to that question, whether they asked it, and they didn't exactly ask it outright, but Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he answered the real question that was going on. We will look at the, the scene itself. We'll be setting things up. Then we'll explore the incident reports about the, two, about the particular incident, his response to their speculations, what repentance looks like, and lastly, point to the parable as we conclude. All right, hang on one second here. Jesus, at this point in the Gospel of Luke, is on his journey to Jerusalem to lose his life. We all know now that that loss of life would change everything forever. But at the time, it's moving up toward that momentous moment when he says, it is finished and yields up the ghost. Now, he's at the scene here with a large crowd, and Luke you know, is a summarizer, not quite as much of a summarizer as Mark, but he is a summarizer. So you see these, these, these uh, events that take place in, in Luke's gospel, and this is one of those. And he's with a large crowd and with some of his disciples as well. Now, one of the group of attendees wanted his commentary in relation to again sins of people and the tragedy that occurred. Some Galileans were preparing for an actively, or either preparing for or actively engaged in doing the usual sacrifices, and for some reason, an army under the auspices of Pilate <coughs> attacked them. And, and ultimately killed several members that were trying to engage in the sacrifices. <clears throat> and they did it in such a way that at least symbolically, the blood of the dead sacrifices was mingled with the blood of the victims. Now it could have taken place near or within the temple area, not sure. What was the motive? of the soldiers to do this? Nobody knows that clearly either, although Galileans were known for being rebellious. So the question is, why did this happen? Now Jesus summarized their intuitive suspicions that somehow they or someone among them had sinned in such a way that it drew the ire of God's wrath, and the tragedy ensued. They remember it's part of the, mem- the the scriptural memory and record of Israel that the loss of the first battle of Ai in the days of Joshua was caused by the sin of Achan. So could this be the case here? The question, whose sin was asked regarding the man born blind in John? The Gospel of John, chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, which states, As he went along, he saw a man born blind from his birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? That he was born blind. Now, I'm reading it and I'm thinking to myself, why would they say this man sinned? How could he be, how could he even sin and be born blind? The logic's not even there, right? But that's what what they asked, right? And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And indeed it was continue reading that passage. Jesus' comment to these folks, as well as the comment he just did, he did to the disciples, is no less concise and direct. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And everybody's like, oops, what's going to happen here? And Jesus says, no, bold print, italics, (laughs) not at all. I tell you that, but unless you repent, you all likewise perish. Sounded like John the Baptist, didn't he? You're all going to hell, you know. (laughs) Jesus then reminds him of another incident, where 18 Galileans were killed when a tower in Salome or Oam, a reservoir near and for Jerusalem, collapsed on them. Then he repeats his previous comment. Do you think that they were worse sinners toward God than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? And by extension, do you think something similar has not happened to you because you are less sinners than they? The answer was, once again, no. (laughs) Bold print, chitalics. (laughs) I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus is using these incidents for a teaching moment. He cuts through the questions and thoughts, running through people's heads, and gets to the real issue. And he does so by answering a different question. Do any of you think you deserve less? Now, let's face it. In our encounters with God, we should ask questions. We should. God can handle any question we throw at him. Ask the psalmist. They're full of questions all through the Psalms. The problem, however, is when we in our questioning call God into account for his actions or inaction in the way Israel did in the wilderness with a proud heart. Now, why am I going through that? Because there's so many people say, you know, when I was in my church, my pastor said you shouldn't question God. Well, let me explain that to you. Yes, you should question God. You should ask questions of God. What you don't want to do is question God. That's different. An example. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? Uh, He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams flowed. What we want to know is can God build a table in the wilderness? Can he provide bread? or meat for his people. That kind of talk gets you in trouble. (laughs) Okay? In fact, Paul says, many centuries later, who are you, O man, to question God? Shall he who is formed say to him who has formed them, why have you made me like this? The answer is no. The one passage there is Psalm 78, 19 to 20. Paul's comment, Romans nine twenty. 20. You are you to answer back to God. You, you, you should read that chapter, because you know, Paul is setting the stage for the question, is there in, injustice in God? And right at the moment when he's gonna say, He's going to tell us what? He stops cold and makes that statement. And it's like, ah! Man, for once God was going to give him an account for his actions. No, he's not. Not to us. Nope, not happening. Who does he think he is? God? Yeah. <laughs> you betcha. Now there are times when God, in order to bring us to the place he knows we need to be, will change the question from what we ask to what we should be asking. And then those are the ones he answers. Because we so often ask the wrong question, which shows we're looking for the wrong answer. It has the feel of looking for love in all the wrong places. In the case of these incidents, the crowd, again, the central question is what did they do to deserve this? But the follow-up question, as we've stated, hiding in the shadows of their minds was, how can I live in such a way that I avoid this kind of tragedy in my life? Is tragedy always a consequence of some kind of sin? There are those who believe that, right? In Job, the central point of his friends was that no such series of calamities would take place in someone's life unless there was some grave sin they committed. It's gotta be. Eliphaz makes this point in chapters 4 through 5. Bildad makes makes this point in chapter 8. And Zophar makes it in chapter 11. Chapter 4, for instance, Eliphaz states as diplomatically as possible, Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? Huh, Joel? Can you answer that? That's where they were at. Now, y'all know, that if you read the book, you know at the end of it, he says that y'all, Joel, I was talking to all three of them rascals, and he said, y'all is spoken wrongly about me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And you better ask Joel to intercede for y'all. That's, right. that's how it ended. But that's where they were at that point. As one commentator put it, our misfortunes result from our misdeeds. But now you're going to ask another question. Yes, Pastor, but what do we see in the book of Proverbs? Well, what we see in Proverbs is a connection between a sinful way of life and the consequences that go with it. We have reason to believe, for instance, that if you engage in stealing to get money for drugs, you have a much better chance. Of spending time in prison that bans some, somebody who does not steal, right? If you spend your teen years getting by and not putting in the effort you need to complete your schoolwork, score well on tests, or get your chores done, there. Yeah, they. I uh, see. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, huh? You guess it. If you're less than 18 years old, yeah, this is for you. How many people in here less than 18? 18 or less? Not too many. Well, if you got any. If you got, <laughs> Dude, <laughs> you got the same gray I got, okay? In any case, if you are that kind of person, there is a good chance you won't be prepared for adulthood. When one day you realize, I'm not a kid anymore. And all that getting by didn't work, doesn't work as well as it did back then. You're not prepared for adulthood. Parents, I'm going grandpa on you right now.
1: <laughs>
0: right? Don't prepare the road for your children prepare your children for the road. (laughs) Case closed. (laughs) So Proverbs is about this general dynamic of cause and effect in life. Yes, but What we're talking about here is trying to link a specific sin to a specific random event of tragedy in a fallen world, such as the announcements back in the day that the 9-11 attacks was God's judgment on America because of homosexuality. That happened. Is homosexuality a sin? Yes, it is. But can you be, quote unquote, prophetic and try to tie it to a particular event? Jesus says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Okay. Indeed, Ecclesiastes says, chapter 8, verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity." See, that is the dynamic in a fallen world. That's what Ecclesiastics is telling you. What is life like under the sun? Above the sun, aha, justice prevails. But under the sun can't always say it all this weird stuff that goes on and some people use this switcheroo if you please to say well then I can't I don't want to serve God or I don't need to serve or or, you know God's not just I mean all sorts of things come out of that because you have to say yeah that happens but you're not looking at life under the sun you're oriented to life above the sun what does Colossians tell us Set your mind on things above and not on things above. Earth. There you go. You do that, you keep yourself straight, no matter what's going on around you. That's your compass. At night, in the woods of life, when you can't tell which direction to go. What's above becomes your compass to get through the woods. Now, what is Jesus getting at when he, after again and again, the tendency, Jesus is getting at the tendency of men and women, boys and girls, to try and prove that they are good people. That's kind of the bottom line, that they are better than the next guy. That they're good enough to not have to repent for that sin, because repentance is for those who are really sinners. Some of the things we heard earlier in the service should dispel us of that uh, idea. Jesus states that the issue here is not the physical perishing of these Galileans or the residents of Lahaina and Hawaii as it relates to sin, but rather that unless all of us repent, we will all likewise perish just as they did tragically perish physically. The issue is perishing spiritually. Perishing spiritually. Disaster is to die unrepentant no matter how or why we die physically. It is the certainty of the second death, judgment and hell, that is at issue here because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, what does repentance look like? Well, let's look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 87. Yes, I'm a Presbyterian. <laughs> That's, this should not come of any surprise. The question is, what is repentance unto life? And the answer... Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his or her sin, an understanding of the mercy of God in Christ. Hello. Does with grief and hatred of his or her sin, turns from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor afterwards. A new obedience yeah, exactly. one commentator identifies the three C's of repentance confession contrition conversion confession contrition conversion confession we understand and acknowledge that we have and committed sin and or are locked into a sin pattern in thought word, deed, or affection. We we get that in the head. We understand. That's the intellectual part. Contrition. We grieve and hate the sin committed or the sin pattern we're locked into. That's the heart part, our emotion, our affection. Then comes conversion, turning from the sin and or sin pattern to God with a renewed mind to obey and follow God's way in thought, word, deed, and affection, relying on his grace. Relying on his grace. How do we walk that out? as we cry out to God, as we meditate on his word, as we crucify the old man, the old woman, make provisions, make no provisions rather, to fulfill the burning desires of our fallen nature, that is the flesh, figuratively cutting off the hand that causes us to stumble, etc., cetera, and other things. This is the hand part, action. The head part, the heart part, that hand part. Again, confession, contrition, conversion. This is, again, all done because we understand the mercy of God in Christ towards us. Without that understanding, we won't even come to God, let alone confess with a contrite heart and convert. We're not talking about, I may be getting ahead of myself, but that's okay. <laughs> Behavior modification. That, that's not heart change. See, God's about changing the heart. Yeah. Yeah. A new affection, hallelujah, yeah. and replaces the old one. And he drives us in a whole different direction. Now, this is not the same thing as remorse. We said in Corinthians 7, 8 through 12, calls worldly sorrow. I'm sorry I got caught, arrested, pregnant out of wedlock, whatever. Regret the consequences. You end up in prison, unprepared for life, or you grieve for the losses, the loss of freedom. Remember the thief on the cross, or the two thieves on the cross, actually? They were actually gangsters. You know, they, 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 they were armed robbers, all right? And one of them said, hey, Jesus, are you the Messiah? Man, get us off this cross. You get off of yours, We you get us off our of ours. Let's get on with life. He wasn't repentant. He got caught. He's sorry he got caught. And he wants his life back. The other guy, he says to his buddy, dude, don't you understand? We deserve to be hung up here. But not him. We, we did the crime. We're now doing the time. But then he looked at Jesus and said, when you come to your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus said, this day, you're going to be with me. That was good enough. He wasn't worried about getting his life back. He He repented. He repented. He repented. In remorse, we do not ultimately acknowledge that we've sinned. Only, as we've said, that we got caught. Again, no hard change. Perhaps behavior modification, but the recidivism rate that happens can tell us something about behavior modification. It don't work. It doesn't. One more thing about repentance. Greek word, metanoia, a change of mind. The apprentice goes beyond just the moral infraction committed against a specific command, i.e. you lusted someone's spouse, raged at your child without a cause, or cheated on your tax return. It involves a change of mind, for instance a tax return, a whole, whole different mindset in terms of how you handle your financial affairs. Not just, well, I'm not gonna cheat on my taxes. How might I handle my finances in a way that pleases God, period? Yeah. Right. You see, it goes beyond just tit for tat. Pacific sin, it gets it to the root of what's driving the bigger picture. It is a change that moves us from a dark and foolish heart and futile thinking yeah, to a heart full of light and the mind of Christ. Now that brings us to the fig tree. But why would Jesus throw the fig tree in this discussion? Because not only does he want these people to understand the mercy of God, he wants these people to understand the patience of God. You see. You see, fig trees were not the easiest trees to plant and get fruit from. It took time, several years, as a matter of fact. Eventually, it would yield fruit. But isn't that a great analogy about the human condition? This parable first warns us we must come to a place of bearing fruit of repentance, conversion, in a broader sense, from worshiping the creature Or the creation, to worship in the creator. From sin unto righteousness, from foolishness to wisdom. All that in the broader sense. To bear the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, which is a bad rap in our day. While renouncing ungodliness and worldly lusts. But like the fig trees, that change, that overarching change, God knows that that takes time. He knows that. He's patient. Now, this parable is not describing an argument between the Father and the Son of the Trinity. I know with all the various theological discussions, you'll come to this idea that, you know, God, the Father is angry and ready to knock us off. And, and Jesus says, no, 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 let's, let's save them. You know. No, they're actually, they're both in cahoots with this salvation thing, OK? All right? Some of you know that the Father planned it, the Son executed it, and the Holy Ghost applies it. So they're together. You know, there's no battle going on here. But this is a tool for Jesus to show the attitude of the Father and the Son toward us in this journey. If you're reading the Old Testament, you'll see how God spent hundreds of years cultivating Israel toward righteousness. He'd send prophet after prophet after prophet before he would finally say, oh, that's it, and judgment would fall. Okay. In many cases, the judgment that fell was exile. which mean, He didn't just kill them all off. You know, have you ever had that? I know somebody that sometimes would say, "Would would say, boy, I wish God would just kill off Ad, would have just killed off Adam and Eve and started over." But that's not what God did. He kept them. You know, with all the mess that they created, He decided not to start over. He decided to redeem. And that's why we're here. He redeemed us. Exactly, hallelujah. Psalms 103. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. He gets the struggle. He gets it. He understands how hard it is for us. In fact, when we have nothing but leaves to show forth in our lives, he digs up our lives, puts fertilizer on us in a variety of ways to bring us to the point of bearing fruit. John 15 calls it pruning, pruning. Uh, Ferguson, Saint Clair Ferguson. He's got this chapter in his book on that's about the Christian life. It's really scientification. He talks about the pruning shears being sharp, and it God, you know. And when he God uses his pruning shears that are really sharp, you know, he starts cutting things out of our lives. Man, it hurts. Hebrews 12 calls it discipline, right? No discipline is is, 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 is is comfortable at the time. It's painful. But afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruits of holiness. So that's that digging around it and putting manure on it and then letting it grow as a result of the cultivation. God cultivates our lives that way. To bring us along, to bring us along. Now you know cultivation is going to look different for each person. That means we can't look at each other and say you ain't being cultivated. You don't have no idea what God's doing in the shadows. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Woo, yeah. I mean, God has a—he—he. He, you know, the light is as the day is to him. Okay. Right. So in the secret places of your life, He's digging. He's pruning. He's working. So we can't always see what God's doing in each other, but we can be assured that he is working. So we pray for each other and encourage each other and spur each other on in our journey. Now, to cut down points to death, not some arbitrary point in time that we don't know about, When God finally says, I'm sick of you, and I'm not going to do anything else in your life. Now, in other words, the days of Esau pleading, but not being heard, passed with the coming of Jesus. I know that might strike some of you strange because many of us have been raised in a tradition that God will at some point in your life, you keep just stumbling over and over and trying to get this thing, he just gives up on you and says, I'm done with you. They misuse that scripture that says, my spirit will not always strive with man. Actually, Jesus said nothing. If you are mine, if you are his, nothing will pluck you out of my hand. Amen. Amen. That's the promise. Amen. 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 He will walk with you to the end. Amen.
1: Amen.
0: What can I tell you? Peter, like part of the the, the trail, the, the insider of Jesus, right? I mean, he's one of the earliest disciples called. Peter, James, and John, the, the big three. I mean, he saw the, the, the transfiguration for crying out loud. He was invited in when Jerry's got her da- got his daughter raised dead. And then he just completely goes chicken when he's finally challenged in that situation when Jesus is about to be crucified. A sermon girl said, oh yeah, you know, I think he was with that Jesus guy. Oh no, no, not me. Oh no, no. And he didn't just do it once. Or twice. He did it three times. And there was a gap between the second and third time before he did it. But that should have been a pretty good moment for saying, you know what, this guy is like He's useless. looked at him. And he knew what he did. Mm -hmm. And he went out crying his eyeballs out. Mm -hmm. Do you know what Jesus did? When Jesus rose from the dead, Mm -hmm. he told the disciples, he told the ladies, the witnesses, the first witnesses of the resurrection. Go tell my disciples, and Peter. And Peter. Meet me. And what he did, he restored Peter. Y'all know what Peter became? He became the head of the church. He preached the very first sermon, that side of the resurrection. 3,000 souls came to Jesus. See, Jesus could see that even as he was screwing up. And Jesus sees the fruit in your life even as you're screwing up. So don't be looking for God to get tired of you. Just keep coming to him. Just keep coming to him over and over and over. Don't let the devil fool you. Keep coming to him over and over and over again. One of these days, hallelujah, your day of Pentecost day is coming. It might not look like, it probably won't look like Peter's, (laughs) but it'll look like the fruit of the spirits. Hallelujah. We're coming in for a landing. Warning, on the other hand, don't get hard-headed. Ask Samson. He just kept chasing the girls. He just would not let it alone. Why? Because he kept, I saw. That's his big thing. Went to his parents. I saw a woman. And finally, he met Delilah because he saw again. And you know what was one of the things he lost in the midst of that? His eyes. The thing that got him in trouble, God figured out a way to get them bad boys out. Okay? And you thought that was the Philistines that did that. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: Do you know what the story is about Samson? He killed more Philistines in his life than his
1: death, death
0: in his life. Because yes.
1: right.
0: when he stood between those two pillars, he was done with his sins. He was done with trying to protect, preserve his life. He told the guy, just just told the little guy that was sitting next to him, just put my hands on the pillars. Lord, one more time. Yes. Yes. Hallelujah. One more time. (laughs) (laughs) He fulfilled God's purpose for his life. As much of a rascal as he was. I'm about to feast myself happy, <laughs> <laughs> In conclusion, do you think you deserve less? No. You will perish spiritually if you do not repent. Taking the key to escaping spiritual death is repentance, both at the start of our walk with Christ and throughout our Christian life. (laughs) The brother said earlier, we all a mess. Yeah, we are. We ain't gotta stay that way. But it's because of him that we don't stay that way. Hallelujah. Repentance again is confession, contrition, and conversion, but not remorse. And lastly, remember, God has great mercy toward us through Christ and patiently cultivates us toward fruitfulness because God knows our struggles. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Before I sit down, if there's anybody in here who has not, and this thing's online too, is that right? Yes. Okay, anybody in, online or anybody in this house that has not embraced Christ, I encourage you today, to embrace Christ. Start the journey. Start the journey. You know, if you live without Christ, you ain't got, to live, you got nothing to live for. You know, this life is here today and gone tomorrow. Ask anybody who has not survived a car accident. One minute they're alive, the next minute they're gone. Right? So invest your life in that which will last for eternity in Jesus come to the Lord I'm sure that there's a way to get a hold of these folks if you're online check the website call the number somebody will get to you if you're in this house this place is full of people who would love to lead you to Jesus just say "I I want to meet him I want to meet him and you will let's pray Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for being honest with us, honest about our sin, not allowing us to play like, well, we're not that bad, or, what, or making comparisons that don't make no sense. Thank you for just being honest and calling us out. But thank you, Lord, for doing something about the sin that you call us out about. You died on the cross that our sins might be not just forgiven, that the, very, the, the, the handwriting on the rap sheet is just gone. The file, file folder has been taken out the drawer and tossed into the furnace. And we can find life in your name. Thank you, Lord. Help us, Lord, as we walk this journey, as we meditate your word, as we cry out to do all those things. Lord, help us to finish that journey. You said that. He who who has begun a good work in you will continue it until the day. We count on that, Lord. And we know we can. And we thank you for that promise. There is hope. But not the kind of hope that's just sort of you know, something we hope for. This is a, a promise. It's something that is firm. Something that has that, that, that's that got teeth in it, Lord. Thank you for that kind of hope. And help us to hold on to it, because it's there, and it will come to pass. In Jesus' name.